Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its people, and its history. Today it's a great pleasure to host Professor Kimberly Katz. She's teaching at Towson University, and she published a very important book about the hardly known Jordanian Jerusalem. The book Jordanian Jerusalem, Holy Places and National Spaces was published early in 2005 and still remains one of the very few works dedicated to that period of time. Professor Katz also published, more recently, A Young Palestinian's Diary, 1941-1945, The Life of Sami Amr. From Hebron, Sami also lived some of his years in Jerusalem. Kimberly, welcome. Thank you very much for having me today. The only and first question that I ask all of my guests is, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is the connection? What is your connection to the city? So my connection really is, it's a, a research home for me. Um, I, I don't want to say that I don't have great friends or co- colleagues, people I've known for 25 or more years at this point. Um, that's certainly true. People are very generous and welcoming and offer great meals and great conversation. There's amazing places to visit and to see and to learn about. All of that's certainly true. But for me, Jerusalem has been a place of research, a, a place of learning. And um, I, I think that it you know, really started when I was doing my master's thesis research in the first part of the 1990s. Um, sort of recognizing that there really wasn't much written about the Jordanian period in Jerusalem. You can walk around the city and hear things about different historical time periods and different rulers and buildings that date back to particular rulers, but you don't hear anybody really talking about the Jordanian period uh, in the city. So already as I was doing my master's and studying Arabic and you know, kind of getting a little bit familiar with the city, it occurred to me that there really wasn't anything, at least in English, uh, that, uh, you know, would sort of open up this time period. Uh, and in general, I mean, there does seem to be much less written about Jerusalem and the West Bank under Jordanian rule, uh, in English for sure. There are some works in Arabic, but generally speaking, I think that there continues to be a dearth in, in this area. So I, you know, I, I made this my research home so that I could could learn more about it. Very interesting. And we're going back to talk about the question of why there are no works dedicated to Jordanian Jerusalem. But if I can bug your memory, what do you remember of Jerusalem in the 1990s? Uh, you know, at a personal level, how did you feel going around the city in that particular period of time? You know, that I think is an interesting period of time. Part of me wishes I may had 
you know, I might have actually kept a diary now that, you know, in the decade after that, it all of a sudden diaries became, you know, much more helpful in trying to understand the city and Palestine and Palestinian lives and whatnot. And there are lots of people who have written about that time period, particularly diplomats who had worked on, you know, the Oslo process and the Declaration of Principles and whatnot. So, you know, we have those kind of elite um, writings on that time period, but I actually remember it, the beginning of it, as a period of hope. Um, you know, 1993, the Declaration of Principles were, you know, and the Oslo Accords were signed in Washington, and there was the coming elections in, uh, in you know, for Palestinians in the West Bank, whether or not Jerusalemites were going to be able to participate in this. There seemed to be some hope in, in all of this, that this was actually going to lead to some kind of meaningful peace. Obviously, there were people on both sides who opposed this, and those people who opposed it, you know, sort of as is often the case, become very vocal, partly through their their voices, but partly through their violence. And violence did become, um, you know, sort of changed its shape, I think, in, in the 1990s. So there was this sort of hope matched with opposition to what was actually happening. And I think the opponents, you know, not, not being one to condone violence, I think the opponents recognized something that, um, you know, that other people or the hopeful people didn't want to recognize, which is that the process didn't unfold fairly. It didn't unfold with the kind of fairness in the backing, right? The United States had uh, not insured itself as an honest broker. And there's been a lot of writings on that since that time. Um, but as a result of that, you know, and the U.S., of course, was just playing its continual role of not being an honest broker for decades. But to sort of bring the parties to this very hopeful moment, right, when Israelis and Palestinians had reached an agreement that they signed, you know, on the White House lawn, and all of that seemed very optimistic um, to a lot of people, I think, uh, to not at that moment, you know, sort of step up and, and ensure that a fair process unfolded or that Israel abide by its commitments to withdraw at certain moments, right? I mean, Israel held the upper hand and continued to do so, and the United States continued to back that. And that, you know, so the opponents, maybe their opposition was not exactly to that particular issue, but uh, nevertheless, I think they would have a case to make for unfairness and um and and you know that the process didn't unfold as it might have been able to. So you know it was both that that decade I think was both hopeful. Um, there was a lot of interest. There was a lot of um, people working, diplomats and aid workers, and all sorts of things happening. It seems like the place to invest. Um, Palestinians were returning in larger numbers uh, into the West Bank. I mean Palestine was going to be built up, and you know I think. Um, by 2000, you know, September 2000, when Ariel Sharon went up to the Temple Mount and Israel's internal politics affected how, um, you know, things were going to unfold over the next decade. Um, you know, it, it looked like all of that effort and all, you know, people's hopes that there might be something positive out of this. All of this was, you know, starting to dissipate. And that, of course, was unfortunate. Yeah, looking back. It feels like that decade is so far away, given what happened next. And yet it was only 30 years ago. So right. really things have been shaped in many different ways. Right. I was wondering, you know, looking at um, your work about holy places and Jordanian Jerusalem, you know, in general, we open books, we read the narratives. Not many times we ask about the process of research. And I was wondering, how was your experience researching the material in Jerusalem, in the archives, in the libraries, in order to produce your work? Um, so that's a good question. I mean, I think anybody who does research in Jerusalem knows that it's a complicated place to be, right? Um, so uh, you certainly need language skills um, and you need to know how to navigate. You need to know how to under, you know, understand who is in a particular place and where you're going to and how you're going to get there. All of that's actually important, I think, when doing research um, in Jerusalem. So sort of crossing the unmarked boundaries to get from Palestinian areas where there are some libraries and small archives to Israel's uh, state archive in another part of the city, right? Those are problems that, that people face every day. Palestinians face challenges every day in navigating the city. But for a foreign researcher, it can be even more challenging, right? Maybe some unwritten rules um, take time before you figure out what is actually um, 
happening. So, you know, so I did a lot of that. Um, but I, I also want to say that, um, you know, the, because the archival situation is so complex, right. Um, that I think, you know, you have to think a bit more broadly about how you manage to write about the Jordanian period, how you do research um, on, on the Jordanian period. Um, and that has to do with um, Jordan's archival situation, right? So a lot, a lot of the documents that Jordanians had been keeping from 1948 to 60, 1967, um, which is the time period that my book, Jordanian Jerusalem, focuses on, um, those documents had actually been captured by Israel in, during the 1967 war. And as a result of that, um, they were unaccessible, um, inaccessible. So, uh, you know, Israel kind of collected these documents and made them part of their own Israel state archives. And there's a whole host of politics around um, ar archival records. Um, incidentally, there was recently, um, you probably remember this, Roberto, an article in the 2016 um, Jerusalem Quarterly, Musa Wuderi, uh, wrote about this, um, this issue of, of scholars gaining access to the sources that particularly relate back to this time period of, of the Jordanian documents and what happened to the Jordanian uh, documents. And of course, Israel also captured the records of the Egyptian-administered uh, Gaza Strip at that point. Um, and I think that we, what we probably don't know is the extent of the records that were lost to Jordan as a country uh, and to Jordanian and Palestinian history as a result. We also don't know what kind of um, uh, restrictions Jordan might have placed on such materials, but because that, those documents never made it into the Jord Jordanian National Archives, you know, we'll, we'll never know. Um, some Israeli scholars, uh, as Musa Buderi outlined, and, which, and something that I had encountered along the way in doing the research for this reading, the books, as you mentioned, um, we, it, you, you know, there are a number of Israeli scholars who have been able to use those documents, Israelis who served, uh, who were both scholars and served the state in some way, whether in the military or in civilian, uh, a civilian context, um, and so I think the first big book on 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 you know focusing on the 1948 to 1967 period he he limited it to 1949 to 1967 was Amnon Cohen's book on political parties in the West Bank under the Jordanian regime. So he you know had been one of these people scholar. He argues very much that his book is a, a scholarly book, and I think that it is. But he also had access to materials that later scholars, non-Israeli scholars, uh, didn't have. And he's not alone. You know, there were a number of scholars from, you know, Avi Plaskov, uh, who wrote a lot about Palestinian refugees in the in the West Bank, Shaul Michal, who wrote a lot about uh, this, this particular period, right? So Israelis have, have been able to rely on historical records that others have not been uh, been able to, to rely on including Jordanian scholars, right, whose government was sort of responsible for that material, and Palestinians as well, about whom or who were living in and may have been in the offices, staffing the offices in which that archival material, what would become archival material, right, the documentary evidence at the time, uh, would have had uh, little access um, to that material. So, so there is, you know, there is uh, scholarship by Israelis in English, um, about this time period, not specifically focusing on Jerusalem, right? I think that you're right in noting that my book is alone or very lonely in being um, a book that focuses specifically and uh, a monograph length work that focuses specifically on um, the Jordanian period uh, in Jerusalem. But there is other work um, that addresses uh, it. There, of course, has been some writing by Arab scholars um, for uh, on the time period, but again, not specifically just on Jerusalem. So um, a uh, short book um, uh, published by Pasia in 1993 on the Jer Jerusalem municipality, generally speaking, which includes a section on Jordan, but it, again, is not the Jordanian period in Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem and, and Jordan played a, a particular role. Um, Jerusalem-born Hazem Nusebe wrote uh, a book um, on the contemporary political history of, of Jordan in Arabic that focused on the 1952 to 1967 period. And again, it doesn't focus specifically on Jerusalem, but it does include that is his birth city and that factors into his analysis. And sort of incidentally, I hope to delve a little bit more deeply into Dr. Nuseba's writings, including his 2009 memoir, which that came out uh, 
four years after my book was published. But his 2009 memoir is titled Jerusalemites, A Living Memory, where he gives his kind of long view on his birth city. But he also includes things that are of interest to my current research. He he discusses in it, not, not in such a long form, but again, he briefly mentions that he was the chairman of the Jordanian delegation to the mixed armistice commissions in the early 1950s. Um, and, and, and so that may give me some cause to rethink a little bit about what I wrote in my 2005 book, but it may also be helpful for my current research, um, which deals with issues of border crossings in the early 1950s. And so the mixed armistice commission that he served as uh, the head of the Jordanian delegation to the commission, uh, he was involved in. Um, I recently also had um, reason to meet Dr. Nuseva again in Amman in 2019. I had initially met him during my dissertation research in the late 1990s. Um, he's a much older man now. So the opportunity to really speak to him, we were both attending a, a lecture, uh, uh, the same lecture. Um, and so I took the opportunity to just greet him and say hello and thank him for his work and for meeting with me earlier on. Um, I had hoped to ask him a little bit more about this issue of the Mixed Armistice Commission. Um, he referred me to Jordanian Ministries, which is, you know, um, it, yeah, it was. I probably should not have bothered him <laughs> at that point um, in his life. He was a very kind man, and uh, and so um, I, I thank him for his help and all. Um, but I think to get at your overall question, um, I think you were sort of leading in this direction about why more people have not done research um, in the Jordanian period just really has to focus on this issue of access to sources. Um, now, of course, some of that also has to do with who's interested in going to Jordan um, or Jerusalem, right? Um, Jordan, of course, became a place that was more and more accessible and attractive to researchers maybe more attractive because it was more accessible over the past decade since the start of the Arab uprisings in 2011, where countries such as Syria and Egypt became much harder to travel to and harder to live in and spend long periods of time there. Um, and so, um, you know, I have spent time in Jordan over the past 10 years uh, as well. And what seems to be the case is not that people are studying Jordan and its role in Jerusalem and the West Bank more, but they're studying what happens to Jordan as a result of conflicts and problems elsewhere. So, you know, people in different disciplines, whether they're economists or anthropologists or whatnot, they're studying the refugee issue in Jordan anew. So not Palestinian refugees in Jordan and the Jordanian West Bank, but Syrian refugees, right, as a result of, of, the, of the Syrian uprising. Of course, people are also studying Jordan's history and traditions and politics through arts, bread politics, urban issues, gender, um, and of course, Jordan attracts a lot of scholars working on archaeology. But I think there's only one book, um, one scholar, Elena Corbett, whose work relates um, a lot to, to my 2005 book. Um, her, she published a book in, in 2014 called uh, Competitive Archaeology in Jordan, uh, with a subtitle narrating identity from the Ottomans to the Hashemites. Um, and in that book, she explores Jordanian uh, identity through a framework of core and periphery. And she goes back to the late Ottoman period when uh, European powers were more and more interested in Palestine and the Holy Land. Um, and, and I think we could look at Palestine as the kind of core and Transjordan as the periphery at that time. That's what she uh, notes in the book. But um, she argues for an inversion of that more traditional view of the Holy Land core, the Palestine Holy Land core in Transjordan as a periphery, when Jordan came to control the holy places in Jerusalem and the rest of the West Bank, um, Bethlehem and Hebron from 1948 to 1967. So that is when she argues Jerusalem became a Holy Land core. Um, and she, you know, so it's a uh, it's a really interesting work, but it doesn't focus just on the Jordanian period. Although um, Elena relied on some of my research, um, you know, that I had done more than a decade earlier. Um, so this was, you know, a really valuable way, I think, to me to see it, at, you know, expanding how to think about Jordan's role in Jerusalem uh, and its relationship to Jerusalem and to West Bank uh, holy places. But of course, she continues on with a longer look. So not only does she start much earlier in, 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 than my book does, uh, but she also expands it till much more recently to look at Jordan's role in um uh, with regard to Jerusalem and its relationship to, to the holy places after 1967, when Jordan had to rethink and, and reconstruct identity 
following the loss of Jerusalem uh, and the West Bank to Israel um, as a result of, of the June 1967 war. This is fascinating, and it brings me to ask a question. Jordan came to control Jerusalem as a result of the 1948 war, and, and obviously they controlled the old city and what then has be, became to be known as uh, uh, East Jerusalem. And you mentioned the question of your holy places is central to Jordanian um, sort of legitimacy to control, uh, you know, Palestine in general, but certainly Jerusalem. So I was wondering if you can take us through a short journey of Jordanian Jerusalem. How was the city between 1948 and 1967? Um, you know, so it's interesting, um, as we were talking about before, maybe even before you started recording, we were talking about um, diaries and memoirs, maybe at the start of the interview. Um, and it's interesting that that you know, that, that wasn't a focus of my research because that wasn't sort of in vogue in scholarship at the time. They were not, you know, they were not, these diaries that have kind of come to light were not yet published. And so we didn't exactly know. Um, I did talk to individuals, right? I mean, Hazem Joseba was one of them. Um, the link between my first book and my second book came as a result of doing research with an individual uh, kind of um, un, uh, usual or unusual story for how one finds one's next research project on an airplane. Uh, you know, I met an older uh, Palestinian uh, whose family was living in, in, in Jordan. Um, and, and, you know, he heard me speaking Arabic on the plane and we ended up talking about my research and what I was doing. Uh, and he had some material from the 1948 to 1967 period that I, of the kind of, 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 um, uh, material that was available for me to use. So on the one hand, I mentioned that the archives were particularly challenging, um, maybe even difficult. So I had to rely on a variety of other kinds of sources. Um, and so while diaries were not yet, I think, so much on, on the radar of PhD students in the late 1990s, um, there were, I was able to find a lot of things, uh, a lot of visual sources. And, um, and so visual sources combined uh, with some, you know, British archival materials, with some newspaper archival um, sources. Uh, and then I think in some of the, the venues in which I was able to, or um, ways of representing Jerusalem, right? So that included things like um, postage stamps and revenue stamps, and it included tourism, uh, of course, but it also included um, pilgrimages, papal pilgrimages in particular. It included renovations of holy places. That those kinds of materials seem to be a little bit more um, accessible. So I remember, um, and, and again, now I, you know, I have to say that that most of my research for for my dissertation and which became my my book, um, I did in Amman. Um, and so the, um, you know, once I kind of recognized that there was a lot of, of stamps that had images of holy places on them, one can kind of begin to step back and see what institutions are doing to represent the country. Uh, and it, you know, it became a little bit complicated. But at the time, there had been a postal museum that was accessible, um, connected to the postal ministry that has since changed. So, you know, I was in this kind of moment where, you know, these things, one could simply go into the postal ministry uh, and, and which had on the ground floor an exhibition of, of the history of postage stamps uh, for the kingdom, which included this 1948 to 1967 um, period. And then, you know, delve a little bit more deeply into what was happening um, with regard to postage stamps, which is kind of, you know, in some ways that in and of itself is an interesting story because it tracks Jordan's um, you know, as historians were looking for change over time and stamps changed over time with how Jordan uh, used them and, um, and uh, to, you know, to demonstrate its connection or its control over holy places or its affinity or the identity that it was sort of creating uh, for Jordanians with regard to holy places. So prior to the 1948 where the Arab League had already issued um, uh, a resolution that was going to deal with, um, you know, support for uh, aid to Palestinians, Palestine aid. Um, and so the, um, the Jordanians were not alone in issuing, you know, this kind of stamp, but they issued a, a Palestine aid stamp, um, in 1946 after this resolution passed 
uh, in the Arab League. And it was supposed to be uh, a stamp series uh, whose revenue, when you buy it, the revenue would then go to help Palestinian, uh, uh, Palestine and Palestinians, um, uh, you know, dealing with the circumstances uh, at that time. And um, and then the, the stamps went through a kind of process where they then need they had an overmark on them, uh, an overprint on them that kind of that that read Palestine. So uh, you know, there's a sort of deeper connection being made here. And then the aid stamps were sort of recognized to be used for all of Jordan after Jordan had taken control of the West Bank and Jerusalem. Then they be, had were overprinted with something that said Waridat or revenue. Uh, and so there's this way of looking at how even just something that seems as simple as a stamp, right, uh, comes to have a, a you know a lot of different messages. Um, over the over time, and then those stamps ultimately were taken out of circulation, um, and other pressing concerns came uh, as, in this um, in the few years after uh, the 1948 war had ended, and and Jordan came to control the West Bank and the the, the old city of Jerusalem, including all of the holy places. And I do from time to time mention um, the holy places that appeared. Um, on 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 visual representations, whether in Hebron or in Bethlehem, but they weren't the focus uh, of the book. But by 1951, after one year earlier, Jordan had um, uh, legislated the um, <clears throat> the unification of the West Bank and the East Bank in the Jordanian Parliament, with speeches by King Abdullah uh, at the time about the significance of all of this. In 1951, there was again a stamp series that was issued. Um, uh, and it, um, it, 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 I, th I think it's a really beautiful and kind of unusual stamp because it's a map, basically. I mean, it has the Dead Sea and it has the Jordan River. And on one side, it has on the Western side, the left side of the stamp, it has an image of the Dome of the Rock. And on the East, side uh, or the right side of the stamp, um, it has uh, the, the treasury in Petra. So, and, and on the, you know, and then it has a big kind of, uh, a little bit of wording on it. It, 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 it says, right? the unity uh, of, um, uh, the, in commemoration of the unity of, of Jordan, right? So it's sort of, it's almost like I think I wrote in the book, it's kind of like the Jordan River is stitching these two parts of territory together. Right. So now, you know, there had never been a political entity uh, distinct like that, that you could draw on and, and create a map and an image and whatever. And here the Jordanians had done it. And this is a reflection um, of unity. So I think stamps were really uh, an interesting way for uh, for the Jordanians to demonstrate you know, how they viewed the territory that they now controlled, which was, you know, very significantly included holy places. Um, postage stamps were not the only um, uh, place where visual representation could circulate in society. And stamps, by the way, are important because um, although it's not really the case in the United States, and I don't know that it was the case in the United States, even in the 1950s, but stamps are, are um, demonstrate purchase of payment for something. So if you paid a tax on something, you might have a stamp to, you know, that needed to be added to a document, right? And, and so, um, you know, they circulated not just because you were mailing a letter, right? They, they circulated in society because it was useful in, for administrative purposes. We are taking a short break and I would like to remind you to follow us on our Facebook page, Jerusalem Unplugged and to interact with various posts. And if you have suggestions for people that you want me to interview, please get in touch. Also follow us on our Twitter account and Instagram and subscribe to the podcast. Just click follow or subscribe to the various platforms you are listening to. Thank you for listening. But another area where Jordan could um, demonstrate its control over holy sites was on banknotes, on money. Um, and, you know, in the very cash-based um, economy that was Jordan, and that still remains considerably, although arguably, I think credit cards or debit cards are now making uh, a stronger showing um, for good or for bad, right? Um, but but banknotes were an, another way that Jordan could uh, could demonstrate its control over holy places. But unlike stamps, which already at the beginning of the 1950s 
for holy places or Jerusalem's holy places. Um, it wouldn't be until 1959 that that Jerusalem that Jordan was able to issue its own um, banknote series. That was the first one in the post-British mandate era, right? The British really controlled the issuance of um, of banknotes. And, and it took until after the assassination of King Abdullah and the um, ultimately the ascension of King Hussein to the throne in 1953. And he weathered a difficult next several years. And it was not until 1959 that a banknote series appeared in which you had um, an image of two holy, two West Bank, sort of Jerusalem West Bank holy places. One was uh, included the Dome of the Rock and the other included um, the baptism site in uh, the West Bank. Um, and that in and of itself is kind of interesting, this, you know, the, this identification of particular sites, right? So in the 1950s here, we see the, uh, the baptism site in the West Bank, but many decades later, when, you know, after Jordan had lost control over um, the West Bank and its and its holy sites, um, there was a there has been the discovery of a rival baptism site on the East Bank, which you know eventually gained the recognition and um, legitimacy of the Pope and other you know significant Christian religious figures. Right. So, and this is of course not the only site that um, has competition for its ancient legitimacy and its modern validity. Um, you know, there are lots of competing holy sites. But this, I think, is one of the things that, of course, Elena Corbett mentioned in her book later on that, um, that you know, Jordan then later on, you know, had discovered a new archaeological site that connects to Jesus and, and, and um, or connects to Christianity through the, the you know, the idea of, of baptism uh, and, um, and that it you know now appears in publications and tourism whatever uh, in Jordan up until today. So there's, there there was and remains a lot of ways of thinking about uh, how Jordan can demonstrate um, at the time in the 1950s and 60s its control um, over holy sites. Um, there are a few other places as well. If you think that your listeners would um, be interested in hearing where um, Jordan did. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This. And I want to move to... Uh... Uh, you know, the question of the diary that you discussed in, in your second book. But I just want to say here that it, it's fascinating to see that we tend to think about the history of Jerusalem and Jerusalem always through building, obviously people, politics, and we forget about the question of legitimacy and 
uh, as I'm browsing pictures of uh, Jordanian uh, stamps between 49 and 67, uh, it, there is a whole, you know, entire collections dedicated to Al-Aqsa, but also to Christian uh, holy places, not to mention that I found a, a stamp dedicated to the first anniversary of uh, Pope Paul VI's visit to the Holy Land. So it's yeah. fascinating how Jerusalem attracts also the question of legitimacy uh, through symbolism. Yeah, One um, thing that I, I want to notice is that the end of Jordanian rule also coincided uh, with the destruction of the Maghrebi quarter. And this is a teaser for upcoming podcast where we will investigate uh, uh, the Maghrebi quarter, the life in the quarter, but also the question of the memory and how it disappeared from essentially both the Jordanian and the Israeli historiography. It looks like uh, once the uh, uh, Maghrebi quarter was gone in 1967, then no side had appetite to talk about it. But what I have appetite to talk about it is uh, your, your, the diary that you eventually published uh, later, uh, A Young Palestinian's Diary, 1941-1945, The Life of Sami Amr. Sami Amr was, uh, uh, was from Hebron, and yet he spent some time in Jerusalem, uh, and also parts of the diaries were written in Jerusalem. Can you tell us who was Sami Amr? Um, yeah, thanks for, for promoting this as well. And it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, how I got to this book project actually stems from the first book, right? I, I met Sami Amr's eldest son, whose name is Samir, Dr. Samir Amr, um, as I was finishing up some of the research for this particular book uh, on Jordanian Jerusalem. And he had more of the kind of visual um, artifacts that I was mentioning to you. He had some tourist brochures from the time period, which also, again, you know, Jordan had a, a program and I spent some time with the director at the time of the Jordan Tourism Board. His name was Ghalib Barakat. I think he may be deceased at this point. He was fairly old at the time. Um, but, you know, so, so promoting Jordan touristically through holy places was also pretty significant. And that is something that I do talk about in the book. But when I had met um, Dr. Samir, he uh, and I talked to him about my book project and what I was doing, he said he had some of these tourism brochures. And if I wanted to see him, I should feel free to come to the family home, which I did. Right. You know, um, and 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 that was kind of an, an entryway. And for years, it, you know, he just followed my research. He he grew up during this time period. Um, but by 1962, he and his family had moved to, to Amman, to the East Bank. Um, they were living in Hebron. But, you know, he grew up during this time period, so he knew something about it, and he had some artifacts. But several years after we had made our initial acquaintance, um, he and we had been in touch for a number of years, he mentioned to me that he had his father's diary from the World War II period, and was I interested in working on it? So, you know, of course, you're like, wow, let me, you know, this would be great. Um, and and so I headed over and, uh, of course, had a was invited for a delicious lunch of stuff to go see the diary. Um, and it was a really wonderful opportunity to meet the family and, uh, and to see the diary and what the diary um, was all about. And um, at the time, of course, I didn't know anything about Sami Amar himself. Uh, I didn't even, you know, I knew the family a little bit. As I mentioned, uh, Samir is uh, is a medical doctor. So he, um, you know, I and, and I would say a very good amateur historian. He's the kind of person you want as a, as a research assistant because he keeps a lot of material and he holds on to it and he knows a lot about it. And he's interested in it and he reads a lot. So he was a great interlocutor for learning more about uh, his father. And I, you know, I, I took a look at it and I realized that it had great historic value because we were starting. This was so he introduced me to the diary in 2004. And we were just starting to see something on diaries come up. Um, more diaries were coming to light. They were starting to be published. Right. One can uh, think of um, uh, Salim Tamari and Assam Nassar's work on Wasif Shoharia, for example. Um, and there were there were others right that that were starting to come to light. So this seemed like a real opportunity um, because Sammy was from Hebron and he grew up his early years in uh, Hebron. And at the time that he wrote, he really was nobody particularly significant. His father had died when he was young. His father had been a tax collector under the Ottomans and died when he was quite young. 
So the family had some struggles and challenges, financial struggles and challenges, plus his mother was now raising five children alone. I think five children, yeah. So um, uh, as I came to learn more about Sammy during his World War II writings, I mean, I also, of course, learned from Samir what he would go on to do. Uh, and he was, you know, I think indicative in many ways of Palestinians growing up in the time period. He completed the seventh grade. That was fairly common at the time at when he was 16 years old. And that also is, was not uncommon because people sometimes worked and came in and out of school uh, when they could complete it. Um, and so 16, I think, was not necessarily unusual. But at 16, he moved to Jerusalem. And he sought to kind of find his way uh, in the world. He would have liked more education, wasn't able to get it. So there is the theme of education running through it. Um, and he would ultimately work for uh, a, a British office. He worked for something that um, in Arabic was kind of hard to decipher. It was called Da'eras al-Nafi. And Nafi, of course, has no Arabic root. But it stood for, uh, Arabs had Arabized the um, English acronym for the Navy Army Air Forces Institute, and they called it the Edison Nafi, the Department of the Nafi. Um, and so he worked for this, was basically the canteen services. Um, and in, in that sense, we get, uh, um, you know, his, his life in Jerusalem, we get a sense of what his work for a British office was all about at a particularly difficult moment, right, World War II. Um, for young people who were trying to make their way, who have limited education, he had some English, right, because the British, uh, the education in the mandate period included enough English so that um, so that Arabs could, you know, serve in some capacity, but not enough to raise insurrection or nationalist agitation or uprising. Right? So he had limits on all of this. He changed jobs. He talked about his life renting rooms in Jerusalem, about relations between different groups of people. Um, he also had a lot of um, anxiety, uh, maybe anxiety, too strong nervousness around girls and women, right? So he writes about that a lot in his diary. He rented a room from an Italian woman um, whose name was Um Aldo. Uh, and she, during World War II of all things, right? An Italian woman living in Jerusalem during World War II when it's under British control. Uh, and, um, you know, she was good to him in a lot of ways, but she made him nervous because uh, she couldn't tell if he was being motherly or kind of coming on to him. Um, you know, what, what, there's like a, you know, he, he talks about sort of being trapped in this thing that he doesn't quite understand. Um, so I think, you know, that, and he also writes about the rooms that he lived in. I, I, one of them is kind of almost like a bomb shelter. In fact, or he writes that he can only see a little bit. He can only see people's legs below the knees from from the from the window uh, of this small room that he was renting at like a basement apartment, a basement shelter, not entirely clear. So he talks about shoes and socks that people are wearing, right? So there's a lot of detail, but a lot of interest from the, you know, from the perspective that we're, um, we're able to get from his life in Jerusalem. But you asked about um, who he was. And after this, uh, experience. He went on to work. Um, he, he wanted to learn the trade of welding, and he had a cousin who uh, was involved with the Communist Party. And it's p possible that he was sort of thinking a, a bit more about nationalism. It's hard to really tell. He ended up moving into um, uh, working for a British mandate office from that. He had a job in welding and making, you know, these barrels for the military during the war. And then he sort of left that as his personal circumstances were beginning to change and he became engaged to a cousin whose father was prominent in uh, Hebron affairs and he ultimately got a job in a British mandate office that became connected to the Jordanian Ministry of the Interior so a local office of the Jordanian Ministry of the Interior after 19 after the war in um, 1948 and he stayed there uh, for a while um, you know, moving his way up in, in, in the Ministry of the Interior and ultimately left when things got a bit um, challenging in uh, around Black September. Um, and then he went on to work in the private sector in real estate uh, and did fairly well. And um, when I met his son on an airplane with his wife and, and family um, in 1999, Sammy had died one year just before that. And um, I never, unfortunately, got the opportunity to meet Sammy, but I feel like I know him very well because I delved really deeply into every word that he wrote in his diary. 
And I asked Samir and other family members. I mean, I interviewed Sammy's youngest sister, who's now deceased. Um, but she lived long enough to see the English version of the diary, um, which has a very beautiful cover that um, the University of Texas Press uh, did, um, including his his picture from his um, uh, British Mandate era passport. So this is this young guy wearing a suit and tie, very handsome guy. So she did. The, his youngest sister did get to see that. Unfortunately, um, his wife did not. So I had also interviewed her, and she died before the the 2009 publication of the book. So that was, um, was pretty sad. Uh, I was also very sad that they never got to see the book published in English, uh, sorry, in Arabic that took uh, a number of years later. It came out in Arabic. The first publication, uh, the first edition of the Arabic version came out in 2017 and it has been uh, published uh, in the second edition just recently. Um, so I I'm glad to know that there's interest in the Arabic uh, diary, which is um, probably one of uh, very few sort of weirdly translated diaries. So the diary itself was always in Arabic and I translated it into English and I wrote about it in English. And when the book was translated into Arabic, the original diary manuscript was used and, and, and um, you know, tr transcribed so that it could be published, uh, you know, in, in, in printed um, form. So it is the original diary, right? It's not a translation, a retranslation of my translation of the diary. It's the original diary. Um, but what I wrote, including the voluminous number of, of footnotes, uh, because both the diary needed annotations and, you know, some of what I was writing needed annotations. So anything I wrote, um, that was translated uh, into Arabic. And I'm glad to know that it uh, has some interest and uh, enough to warrant a second publication, a second edition. And I really hope this may serve as uh, some sort of a, a push, particularly for those listeners that may have, you know, connected to Palestine or the families in Palestine to look into some old boxes. And, you know, sometimes you you can find something which you never thought could be valuable but actually is extremely important for historians in order to rebuild and write about the neglected history, particularly of those periods that you've been working on. Jerusalem under Jordanian rules, we don't know much about the city. Similarly, about the period of World War II, there's so much political history, but so little about the social history of the city, the uh, interactions between the communities. And so even this, uh, you know, the glimpse of history that we have through the diary here helps us to understand the nature of a sort of intercommunal relations between people. And I think this is very important uh, for us and all of us that love Jerusalem. To tie back to what we were talking about earlier with the issue of archives and sources, I mean, as you say, it couldn't be more important to gain access to people's private papers. And there has been a push, right, as you know, and the Jerusalem Quarterly has been doing some very good work on bringing these diaries or at least excerpts um, or, or scholarly analysis of them um, to light. But in light of the fact that particularly from the 1948 to 1967 period, not just from Jerusalem, but all of the cities and villages of the West Bank, there is, um, you know, archival material is just simply difficult to get access to, right? It is either within the Israel State Archives, which is now even less accessible than it had been. Uh, and, and I will say, you know, Jordan's National Archives has improved over the decades, right? They built a whole new building and archive and library building um, not far from uh, uh, Jordan University. And uh, they've been digitizing a lot of material. But I mean, I think for this particular time period, because the records were in the West Bank and in Jerusalem. And those records, you know, there was no collection of all the records, quick, let's get them back to the East Bank because war is coming in 1967, that didn't happen. So those records are, are lost and, you know, difficult to access. And while there is some accessibility, it's limited. So, so private papers, diaries, letters, you know, they, they probably couldn't be more important for th than they would be for this particular period. One last question. You mentioned earlier your new project about crossing borders. And I was wondering if you can share a little bit uh, of this new work that may see the light in the coming uh, years, hopefully earlier. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I, I, I hope I'm not the only one whose research has been derailed over the last year, year of the pandemic. Um, uh, but um, anyway, yeah, I do have some um, records uh, that deal with um, border crossings. 
and um, people who are arrested for for those border crossings. And so what I'm trying, and, and it's actually this uh, is a you know sort of move into more work on Hebron and the Hebron district, right? So there's this kind of geographical progression of my initial, you know, my first major work, my first book being on Jerusalem and the connection to that work, right, through Samir Amar, the son of, of the diarist whose diary I translated and published, um, you know, his interest in what I was doing kind of led me to his father's diary and his father's diary led me to search for things again in the Israel State Archives, in the Jordanian National Archives, wherever I could um, to find materials and uh, you know, another re reminder or, you know, it wasn't that this was new to me, but a reminder that scholarship on Hebron is even less, right, available in English um, and, and not overabundant in Arabic either or Hebrew, right? I mean, the, the, the works that uh, appear tend to focus very much on the holy places in Hebron, but again, not so much on the social history, people's lives. Uh, or even their connection to the administrative apparatus in the city, right? So I think, um, you know, the the idea that I can contribute something on what happened to people's lives in this, again, post-1948 period, um, and, and their connections to their homes, and when they ended up on the Jordanian side of the border. Um, and again, I think border studies is becoming something that scholars of the Middle East, historians of the Middle East are delving more and more into, right? I would say the last 10 to 15 years, maybe there's been uh, more interest in, in borders where I think it had been long been the domain of, of U.S. historians and the southern border and issues around the southwest in particular. But we're now seeing more of that um, in a lot of different ways. And I do hope that I'm able to make a contribution um, in published form at some point soon. Kimberly. Thanks a lot for being with us here at Jerusalem Unplugged today. Thank you, Roberto. The pleasure was all mine. Your insight about Jordanian Jerusalem tells us that there's a lot that we don't know about the city and its history and its people. I would like to remind all our listeners, if you're from Jerusalem, if your family is from the city, perhaps dig into old boxes. And if you find something, a diary, a letter, remember, you're probably sitting on a treasure. Make it public, get in touch with historians, with people that may value what you have been preserving for years or decades. Once again, thank you Kimberly, and remember to follow us on our various platforms, our Facebook page, please like us and follow us, also our Twitter and Instagram accounts. Thank you, until the next podcast. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>